If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 157 is Gerald V. Casale, best known for his work with Devo. He has co-fronted that band throughout his existence. He's the chief philosopher. He's one of the guys that came up with the idea of de-evolution in the first place, which the band was conceptually founded around in 1973. They released eight albums on major labels between 78 and 1990, have periodically gotten together for concerts and for one album, Something for Everybody, in 2010. A lot of our focus today is going to be on his limited but very interesting solo career. He has just released a new single, I'm Gonna Pay You Back, which you can get as a 7-inch vinyl single or repackaged with his 2005 solo album, originally released under the band name Jihad Jerry and the Evildoers. We will discuss one of those 2005 songs, The Owl, and we'll look all the way back to the track Fountain of Filth from Hardcore Devo Volume 2. And we'll conclude by listening to the single It's All Devo by Gerald Casale, backed by Italy's Funk Investigation from 2016. For more information, please look at GeraldVCasale.com. For more about this podcast, check out NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. Make sure you're subscribed directly to this podcast feed. And if you want to support the effort, you can go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic or upgrade to a paid subscription directly through the Apple Podcasts app. So I will have played a little bit of Whip It, of course, for Freedom of Choice 1980 to uh, remind folks who you are. But we're going to get very quickly to the new thing. This is a weird thing in that it's a new single but you're packaging it for release with an album sort of between Devo projects from 2005. But say a little about your choice in reviving it that way. It wasn't really my choice. There was interest from Real Gone Music, a small label that puts out fringe stuff. And they really liked what I did when they only recently discovered Jihad Jerry and the Evildoers, Mine Is Not a Holy War LP. They said, we want to re-release this. And I said, okay, that's kind of cool. Because, I mean, when I released it, I think uh, Cordless Records put out a 1,000 copies. That was it. 1,000 copies. It was gone. No promotion. No nothing. And, of course, I generated a certain amount of publicity just because of the Devo connection. And I did a lot of interviews. And I think the one that really finished it off for me was the Sirius XM interview in New York, where the guy really liked the opening track, uh, The Time Is Now. And he goes, you know, this sounds like a Devo song. Like he's all amazed that maybe the guy that wrote like 50% of the material might still only be able to write the way he writes. (laughs) So I go, yeah, it makes sense that it would sound like a Devo song because Devo's DNA, I'm in there. You know, it's Mark and I. And he goes, well, you know what? If I could say Devo, I'd play the shit out of this. But I can't say, Jihad, Jerry, the evildoers, I'll get hung. And I go, I said, oh, no, you'll get beheaded. I, I realized that the satire was totally lost 
that we were living in that post 9-11 world where all humor was gone and Bush was having his way with Iraq. And so it didn't matter that I was a senior citizen in a stupid Sam the Sham style turban. I guess that wasn't in your face enough. I got death threats from Caucasian guys, and I got shaming emails from Muslims, of course. So G.I. Jerry did not get the love. So when Real Gone Music wanted to put this out, reissue it, I just thought that was kind of cool because it was so obscure and nobody ever heard it. And they said, do you have anything new? And I went, well, you know, there were a couple tracks that I didn't include on that record that I recorded back then, but I would like to do something new. And they go, oh, that would be great. So that's when I finished a song that Josh Freeze and I had always played around with half-jokingly and got serious about finishing it. And I went down to Long Beach and I finished it with him in his studio. And we got Steve Bartek to play on it from the Oigo Boingo and Josh Hagar from Shadow Party. And Jeff Winter put it all together. You know, he liaised with Real Gone and coordinated everything. And then... Uh, I felt that I really had to do a video once and for all to let the world know who G.I. Jerry is, since he is kind of a cartoon character in a way. So I did that video with my good friend, Davey Force, who's an incredible CGI artist. And I knew the look I wanted, and I had described it to Davey before, but we couldn't find any live action program to do that. Davey actually created that from taking various deep learning programs and tweaking them and hacking them. So starting with video footage and then screwing it up? Yeah, we shot me on green screen. I mean, did a complete storyboard. I had the whole idea down. And we did it in Davey's little garage studio because, you know, it was a no-money project. And he did me tons of favors. I mean, that video, if you were paying market value for that kind of CGI compositing and effects, it would be a lot of money, actually. So I was very happy with the outcome because what that did is it, it established the world I want G.I. Jerry to exist in. So G.I. Jerry can come back in that world with new stuff. All right, well, let's hear the song. And in fact, I want to invite listeners to stop this, jump over to YouTube, watch the video <laughs> so we can talk about the visuals as well as, as the audio. Duplicitous man on a curious mission, waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm gonna pay you back. I'm gonna pay you back. I'm gonna pay you back right now. What you selling? You're lying. You appropriated credit. You let them think you said it. I gotta give you credit. That hat trick is impressive. Take all the fame and glory. Deflect the blame. Rewrite the story. I'm gonna pay you back. I'm gonna pay you back. I'm gonna pay you back right now. One hundred. I'm gonna pay you 
So folks have now experienced the song. Can we talk about the, I've been a little unclear. I know as far as the images, you're very, very hands-on, but as far as the arrangement, putting this together, I mean, was this even done? Like was Bartek in a room with you or was this internet? It's COVID time. We're sending files back and forth, that kind of thing. Josh and I worked on the whole thing in the same room together uh, in his studio, but no, Steve was in another home studio in Los Angeles. I know some folks have the fancy technology of, I will coach you, I will engineer you through the session remotely. No, this was just sending him a file saying, do some stuff with it. In engineering in real time, we talked together like this, listened to the song, discussed what we were going for and ideas I had for Steve. But then, of course, I wasn't going to insult him and make him like, you know, a studio session guy to do what I want. I wanted to hear what, given what I told him, what would you do, right? Do you fashion it your way, given what I think I'd like to hear? And he did. He was great. And he, he was having fun with it. He liked the song, which that always helps a lot. Yes. And you don't need to insult the session player while they're doing it because you can just fix it in post. Was there a lot of, in terms of, there's a little too much of that riff. Let's shorten that. Let's move this over here. That kind of digital. We did cut and paste Steve's best stuff. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I was more thinking this in terms of, I know that Devo had a very minimalist approach, even the stuff when it was kind of overarranged. Maybe there was an extra thing just to thicken it, to change the character of the sound. But for the most part, like there's a reason that so much of it still works incredibly well live, even though it's maybe four keyboards that are visible or three keyboards. So I'm just wondering how that, that seems to lead to wanting to have a lot of control over every individual sound. Like, okay, I want guitar to come in just for there and you can do some kind of squawk, but you know, if it gets too fancy and I noticed in this song, there is a, a little extra Steve playing around that a lead guitarist might want to do it. I love it, but did you feel like, okay, well, this is a different project. It's okay if we sacrifice the minimalism or were you still looking at it through that lens? I can't help but be like that. I'm me. So yes, I'm always kind of going to be minimalistic because of Charlie Watts' death yesterday. Everybody started sending me um, these files that you probably heard like, Charlie Watts, six greatest drum tracks isolated for you, you know, and you just hear the drum tracks. Yeah. And of course, you, because of the recording techniques back then, you can hear ghosting the other parts. 
you know, you can hear Keith Richards, you can hear the bass ghosting in the studio, but you understand the context. And I so much respect the Stones. Every part you hear has to be there. It's almost cacophonous the way these parts come together and in a beautifully orchestrated train wreck. And when you hear them apart, it sounds like a mess. And that dirty power of real rock and roll that you love. I think Devo was always, because of when we grew up, we were, we were always informed by that same kind of self-imposed ground rules. I think when we got away from that was where it all went wrong. Am I right that the, it's still you're, you're playing synth bass or it's program bass rather than just picking the bass guitar back up for these fast little parts? Or is that just process bass guitar? No, that was bass guitar. Okay, so it's just processed so that it has that extra sludgy... <laughs> well, yeah, we put some effects on it. Uh-huh. Do you have a preferred kind of bass sound at this point? Obviously, because I thought it was Moog bass or something, is that just part of how you're picturing bass now? Or do you really change it up? for each song at this point. I still have a soft spot for Moog bass. I love the Moog bass we were using because Jim Mothersbaugh, Mark and Bob's brother, was a technician that got a serious job at Roland. He, he was a real, you know, electronics egghead. Back in 1982, he ganged two mini Moogs together so that I was playing with six oscillators and it was going through a mixing box and it was being compressed. And so suddenly especially live, I had this incredible synthesized bass sound that was had real balls. <laughs> and people couldn't figure out what they were listening to because it was, it was not wimpy. So I loved that. But I still like going back to just, there's nothing better than a bass with really good tone and new strings <laughs> that has beautiful resonance and just playing it well. It occupies a space in the frequency range that's just hard to beat. You know, it's just hard. It sits there in its own lane, that's what you want. It was only sort of this past that I noticed, okay, you're a lefty. You can be like the guy that is playing bass synth, you know, uniquely qualified. I couldn't, <laughs> very few other keyboardists would. Yeah, I'm so left-handed, I, I can't help it. I mean, when I was in elementary school and I was forced to go to Catholic school, the nuns and the priests used to smack my hands with a ruler, take my left hand, beat it with a ruler and stick the pen or pencil in my right hand. And I would cry. And uh, then when they left, I'd put it back in my left hand and go at it again. That's the sin hand. You shouldn't I threw a ball, baseball left-handed. I, I fenced left-handed. I kicked soccer balls and footballs left-footed. I could not do anything except rudimentary stuff with my right hand. Let's talk a little more about the, the sound palette for this. I want to play about 30 seconds in before the verse. You've got your rhythm section answered by the, the guitar. And then this, it seems like the synth part is about three sounds on top of each other with the whistle on it. Can you say a little about sort of your choice of those patches and how that kind of thing comes together? Because it sonically stacks very well. I was asking Josh to help me. He's got some analog synths in his studio. I was asking him to help me do a sound that I was, you know, very crudely mouthing. Like, you know, a sound like this, Josh. And then you, it's your version of air guitar, but synthesized air guitar. And through trial and error, he found a sound I really loved, which is that sound that you're hearing. So that was already had more than one component to it. You didn't like stick multiple things together. Had two octaves. That dying whistler. And, uh, yeah. And then he played that. 
Yeah. So was any of this programmed or this was just all kind of individually played as you were going through? There was a white noise wash that acts like digital version of cassabas. That was programmed. That was our BPM. So we had a click track in that to kind of glue all the counterpointed parts together because nothing's playing just like a driving line that's constant. Everything is in and out, in and out. Well, I mean, a lot of kick drum, I guess it stops a couple times, but you got the four on the floor. Yeah, we got four on the floor. That and the white noise, that's the only thing gluing it together, kick drum and that. We play the about 120 in the, the transition to the chorus here. I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to pay you back right now. So again, would that be kind of Bartex injection? Or you already knew, like, we need to have a little guitar rocket take off here over the spazzy drum thing that they've already heard a few times. That's why we went to it. <laughs> and then just making it so stark during the I'm going to pay you back part, you know, that it's really just, is there anything besides drums? I'm trying to remember. Oh, yeah, just the kick drum and then Steve answering it with that choky note. Yeah. Yeah, it was sort of a, a, a couple listens before I like, wait, is this a, are you doing a rap? No, no, no. You do sing parts of it, but it's, it's very, you know, you got to fit all those words in it. It's a white man's rap. <laughs> it's a white man's rap. Well, and then just to sort of deflate that further, having the gaslight and have, have that have this, uh, I want to say sped up because I'm thinking analog where I would record stuff slightly slower so I could come back munchkiny. But what are you doing with that at this point? Is that, that's just digital pitch correction or? The don't be guessed like me, mofo, that part. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I did. What? No, what you just did. I did it. It's not oh, sped okay. up. It's just me doing a cartoon character. I see. Let me play a little of that spot so we can talk because that gets even a little crazier in terms of the sonic palette here. Don't be guessed like me, mofo. Don't be guessed like me, mofo. Don't be guessed like me, mofo. So a lot of these are the elements that we've already had before, this driving bass and drums and this guitar. But then there's this wash of just kind of going in the background. Any idea what that is or how that was produced? That's just multiple tracks of Steve. Oh, really? Okay. So just him scraping strings or doing things with his pedals or whatever to... Yeah, because he, he submitted a lot of different ideas, right, in each part. Beyond what I was telling him what I'd like to hear. Then he said, well, here's this variation. Here's this idea, right? And, you know, that's always exciting when you hear something you didn't think of and you like it. <laughs> you got to be open and honest to like things that you didn't think of. And when, you know, when we started experimenting and layering, we realized that at the point after the gaslighting, it needs to really be scary. And so it gets scary. Yeah, let's say a little about sort of the movement of the plot here. So I assume you've got in the video, it's a trade-off with Jerry singing some of it, Jihad Jerry singing some of it, and Gerald, you singing some of it. Was that a during-the-video decision, or was that during the writing of the song, you know, okay, this is kind of character one, this is character two. There's not any strong indication of that, just listening to the song. No, 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 I didn't have that idea of the alter egos fighting with each other when I was writing the song. I did not. Well, maybe you would have even done more of a silly voice or something. I don't know. It seems like this Jihad Jerry did not require an alter. I'm told you've had multiple alter egos over the years, and I guess only some of them have funny voices, have cartoon voices to them. Well, I wrote that song because, I, like many people, I've been a victim of pretty serious uh, gaslighting and, and betrayal. Look, this town is full of 
malignant narcissists. There's people that play really mean, nasty games. I mean, mean and nasty because these same people, when they get in a social situation or they think they're being judged or looked at, they'll act like Mr. Rogers or Eddie Haskell when he's being polite to Beaver's mother. The nicest guys in the world, all shucks kind of guys, you know. And then, boom, these are backbiting, knifing kind of guys. I realized that many people had the same experience through their lives, whether they're in the music business or not. And ultimately, when that happens to you, and you feel like you're losing your mind, and you feel like this can't really be true, this can't be happening. Like when Trump would come on television and just lie, like in your face, like ridiculously bold-faced, idiotic lies. And you just couldn't believe that the media was giving this guy a forum and letting this pass, right? You go, what kind of world am I in? Like, have I gone through a wormhole in space and into an alternate reality here? Many people feel like that in their lives when they're trolled by some narcissist. And uh, I realized I can't make a video about that because it's too painful. But what you can make a video about is the fact that when that happens to you, what are you left with? What's your choices? Either you're going to let them bring you down, you're going to let them piss you off, and you're going to do exactly what they wanted you to do. They manipulate you into doing. Or you're going to not accept the premise of what's going on, and you're going to call them out. So that's what the video is. The video is the fact that you are left with dealing with yourself to either triumph over over being a victim of a narcissist or not. And so G.I. Jerry represents another aspect of Jerry Devo. And so they go at it internally. I think we can talk some more about the ideology of Jihad Jerry, but let's get the second song on the table first, which I picked The Owl from that original 2005 release called Mine Is Not Holy War at the time, credited to Jihad Jerry and the evildoers. And this is... You're being Jihad Jerry, but now is a persona taking on a persona because this is from the point of view of the owl. Can you say just a few words of what to make of this song before we play it in full and then we'll decode it? Yeah, I guess I have this obsession with owls. The more you read about owls and the mythology of owls and historically what certain cultures endowed owls with, it goes way beyond the wisdom of the owl. You know, it's almost like the all-knowing eye, like the person that sees right through you. You can't fool God. God knows what's going on here. The owl represents just pure, no-bullshit honesty, omniscience. And so G.I. Jerry's singing from the position of, that song, I love the song. It's like musical theater to me. Like if there was a musical, G.I. Jerry could be on stage in this musical singing the owl with... You know, girls in owl outfits dancing. (laughs) Because, I mean, if you listen to the lyrics, which I'm sure you have, he's just laying waste to all the hideous, false, trivial, negative values of the worst parts of Western society and uh, dangerous capitalism. I mean, like the worst part of capitalism. So what he says finally is, is this. He says, no one who's honest has anything to fear from me, right? <laughs> That's a, if a shoe fits, wear it kind of line. It's like, if somebody's uptight by that, they go, they must not be honest. <laughs>
I was sort of listening to this through a kind of a Watchmen, because I think that's actually the name of one of the characters in the Watchmen lens, where it's, yes, this owl character is judging all, but is maybe an unreliable narrator. You're saying, no, actually, you're being entirely sincere in that Jihad Jerry is a way, uh, just a mantle to take to wage a, a war on stupidity. And this is something to also take down capitalism. But it sounds like this guy is kind of a nut himself. How does the irony work in these two layers of false personas? It's like we said with we're all do. Oh, if you don't include yourself in the quotient, then you're not honest because am I nuts on some level? Probably. But am I, am I more nuts than the next 10 guys? No. It depends on what kind of nuts you're talking about, right? What people I'm attacking in, in the owl, they're not fun nuts. They're not creative nuts that make you laugh. These are people that are ideologues that take away your liberty and take away your freedom and intimidate you and try to put their boot in your face. I suppose the irony is in the particular choice of phrasing because it's obviously tricking a starving whore with a hole in her heart into giving it up then refusing to pay. That is perhaps not something that literally happens, like that that is the person in the comic book that the owls then sweeps down and But, you know, metaphorically, you could say any number of political acts or just abuses of power. Well, I know that. But that that stuck with me. I read that came from a newspaper article in The New York Times about these two Silicon Valley one percenter guys that went to New York on a bender on a like a was a bachelor weekend or something before their friend got married. And that's what one of them did. They got this big suite, at one of the finest hotels, like the Sherry Netherland or something. And they, um, you know, they paid for some prostitutes with the plan of stiffing them and were very proud of it and thought they were very funny. So they told this to their friends and somebody ratted them out to the press. So does the next example, the uh, giant SUV chasing down a little car, and was this also something? That happened. That was in the papers. Uh, yeah, a guy in, an, in a big SUV um, saw one of those Mercedes smart cars, you know, the little ones that were going around about... 10 years ago on the streets, 12 years ago, they were tiny little thing. They were like small, like Izetas were in the 60s. Sure, sure. I still see them around a bit. Yeah. In, in the real story, he did wait till the guy got out, but he was mad at how slowly the guy was going and how slowly he parked. And he just, he plowed into it, turned it on its side, rolled his wheels up over it. All right. So this is more literal than I thought. What about the, the bridge? You've got your little red hen imagery. Who will praise me when I'm dead? Who will keep my secret? How does this fit in with the sort of the owl character that you've set up? Well, you know, that just goes back to one of those childhood stories you're told about who will help me bake my bread, who will help me eat it. And, you know, it's this case of, especially when you live in L.A. and you have all these middlemen that just are parasites, they just take from you. You know, you have managers, business managers, promoters, lawyers. A, they're not going to let you make any money unless they're making money off of you. They're going to make sure you make your money last. They all get exorbitant amounts of money for what they do. And what do they do? They tell you that, hey, you need me. This is the way it works. You have to have me. When you first get out to this culture from Podunk, Ohio, you're going, what are you talking about? That's, what do you mean I need? That's crazy. (laughs) And then you find out what they mean. (laughs) You get used to the titi flies and the parasites. I guess we can be grateful that so much of that has broken down that there's people don't even have the power to give you anymore. 
But I, reading your story and your complaints makes me a little glad that I did not get more positive response when, you know, begging industry people to support my music in 1991 or what, you know, when I, when I was at that point. That's the opening gamut. You would have found out what really happens after that. Let us stop for a moment and talk about our corporate overlords. Nebia by Moen, the shower spa, is a cool thing. Nebia was backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook, designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water and is anything but ordinary. And the Nebia by Moen spa shower is Nebia's most advanced shower yet, with twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads. The shower is a good thing for me, as thinker, as somebody coming up with melodies, as somebody rehearsing embarrassing conversations that I had 20 years ago that I'm still freaking consumed with. And the ordinary shower experience involves a lot of sort of rocking back and forth to, to kind of get all that coverage to stay warm like you're in a womb. Well, this showerhead uses atomized droplets to really fill the space, making it a very spa-like experience. But yet the thing, it goes up and down. You can put it below your head if you're getting overwhelmed. The whole thing feels like you're showering under a waterfall with a spray 81% more powerful than the competition. Despite this, it uses 45% less water, saving you money, saving the planet. There is easy self-installation. Takes about 15 minutes. They walk you right through it. There are online videos showing you exactly what to do. It comes in multiple finishes, so you can for sure match what's in your bathroom. They also sell other sustainable, sleek bathroom accessories, shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats. The Nebia by Moen Spa Shower starts at just $199, and for nakedly examined music listeners, we have a deal for you. The first 50 people to use the code NEM at nebia.com slash NEM will get 10% off all Nebia products. I'm told that Nebia rarely does deals like this, so this is the one to jump on. Go to nebia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer. Only if you're one of the first 50 people to use the code N-E-M when checking out will you save 10% off Nebia products. The only exception to this is pre-order products, as Nebia is currently offering free shipping in the U.S. on these products already. Again, that's nebia.com slash N-E-M. Use that code N-E-M to save 10%. You are listening to this show, Ergo. You love podcasts. You love music. You'll find tons and tons of both on Amazon Music with more than 10 million free podcast episodes to listen to, 75 million songs, music videos, thousands of music stations, top playlists. Now, a lot of the stuff you can stream absolutely free and you can go hands-free with Alexa. But if you want your music on demand, ad-free, you got to try Amazon Music Unlimited which lets you, you know, go to exactly the song you want. It's not like listening to a radio. You just skip to the next thing. Come on, you guys must know what on-demand streaming music is. Maybe you do. Maybe you use it on one of the competitors. Maybe you do it through YouTube, which is a stupid way to do it because you're using your data streaming video when you should just be streaming the music. Anyway, whether you've never tried an on-demand music service or just haven't tried Amazon's in particular, this is a great time to do it. For a limited time, new customers can try Amazon Music Unlimited free... For 30 days, with no credit card required, just go to Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D. That's Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D to try Amazon Music Unlimited free for 30 days. Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D. Renews automatically. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. I know you were, you've talked about how Jihad Jerry was just a Devo. There was something ambiguous about it. And 
the irony was right baked in there that we're going to actually be the, the ones who are devolving. Yeah. Some of the songs, I really admire your IQ of 37 or what, you know, these, some of these songs are just like straightforwardly <laughs> insulting. But by the time, you know, the product got out there, it was more ambiguous. It was more, you know, you can't really be insulted by us because we're participating in it in some way by being in the costumes. But it seems like, no, with Jihad Jerry, you're moving more towards straightforward. Yes, I'm doing still obviously something comic. But I can be straightforwardly condemning in a way that, I don't know, was that a gradual thing? Certainly you have, what, Jimmy's in a wheelchair and I don't care. You have these some things in the Devo catalog, even later, that are, are still very direct in that way. You're right. I mean, there was always that aspect of Devo that was politically incorrect and polarizing, controversial, and exquisitely stupid on purpose. I mean, if you look at Jihad Jerry, he's pretty stupid. I mean, it's ridiculous. A senior citizen in a ridiculous turban that's not even accurate to what turbans are. Was it a piece of plastic? Was it was it wrapped in any way? Or, no. No, I went to a woman who who's a costume designer and stylist for feature films and television shows. I mean, she's really talented. But I told her what kind of theatrical turban I wanted, almost like more like I could have been on the Johnny Carson show, you know, as a magician or Karnak. And she... She just nodded and giggled and went, okay, I, I know what you want. And she made up a mock-up and it was right on. And I go, I'll take six of those in different colors. <laughs> so in doing this album, was this material that it accumulated over a bunch of years? Or was this like, okay, I've thought of the Jihad Jerry idea. I'm going to write all this stuff specifically for this in a fairly short period. And then how did you get the people together to actually do this? I, I guess a lot of Devo people played on this. Can you say a little about sort of where you were at at this point with this 2005 era? Back when I had the idea, it was because of the invasion of Iraq. Mm -hmm. That snapped me. What Bush did, the trumped up, ginned up war, and what he, you know, it was just, it was shocking and horrible. That's when it started. So yes, between 2003 and 2005, other than the covers I did, which was, I did a cover of a Devo song, Find Out. And I did a cover of an old Yardbirds song that nobody ever paid attention to called He's Always There from, I think, their second record. But all the other songs I wrote between 2003 and 2005. And of course, Devo wasn't working. I mean, Mark wasn't interested in Devo working or writing songs or touring or anything else. But um, that made it easy to get him to play on a couple tracks and Bob Mothersbaugh to play on some tracks. And my brother who's now deceased, Bob Casale, to play on some tracks. And then good friends I had made that are very serious players, but not in successful bands, they played on some tracks because they were friends with this guy that I had partnered with on an architectural project because he's a restoration architect. And he's got great aesthetics and he's got really good songwriting ability, actually. And his friend was an incredible guitar player, Chad unbelievable just untapped talent so i got him to play on some tracks and so we had a lot of good people playing you know really playing well i had josh freeze playing the drums and sonically within still kind of the devo realm except more guitar heavy sort of what i would expect are you still kind of playing within that sonic space just because that's how you're used to writing that is sort of what's in your head or do you feel like okay if i don't have a little sci-fi theremin sounding synth in it then it's not going to sound Devo enough and nobody's going to like it. Like, I'm sure you were not thinking about that with this project, given that you only made a thousand copies 
and did not promote it extensively. But can you say a little about sort of the decision making and just like how you're doing this arrangement? Right. Since I wasn't writing songs with Mark, eh, the songwriting was going back to my roots, which was everything was written on a guitar and bass. There was nothing written on a synth or a keyboard. So, of course, it was more rock and roll or R&B oriented, more straightforward, less artsy or pretentious, because it wasn't this amalgam of electronica and rock. It was just almost more like R&B. I mean, I think the owl, the owl just sounds to me almost like something Bowie might have sung on in 1974. Well, yeah, especially with the gospel backing vocals that you have a little bit there, if I'm remembering exactly the right (laughs) era of Bowie. I've always loved black backup singers so much. And so I finally got to do that. And having some of that as leads, like that you, throughout this album, there's a little bit of, let's have guest voices come in here and there to just make it more theatrical, I would say. But it's, at least to me, like, particularly with the new one, which I I realize is a different, a decade and more later, but it's still, it's not as clear. Like when you say theatrical, that can just mean showy and it has a lot of interesting sounds, or it can mean there is a coherent plot that you can follow. And the owl, you sort of can, like this could be part of a musical. I'm going to pay you back maybe just the nature of trying to make it not so on the nose, obvious, like a particular scene. It muddies up the plot a little bit, but of course the plot is always optional in a pop song. (laughs) You're right. 16 years had passed. And Jihad just doesn't feel the same as he did 16 years ago. Well, I guess it lasted as long as the war. How about that? 20 years of war, and then you can't get your own people out. I mean, this is a debacle and a half. This is horror. And so is that the kind of thing that Jihad Jerry, so Jihad Jerry, even though you're using this deliberately provoking Islamist trope, but it's an American, well, actually, I think, didn't you write a fictional biography of Jihad Jerry so that he was a somebody born in Iraq that came to America, you know? Yeah, I did. So it provides a little more context, you know, of course, optional for people that are listening to where the criticism is coming from, but it lets you, yeah, just, I guess, any any final thoughts before we actually turn back to early, early Devo on the relationship between this, we're gonna, there's just something so brilliant about the early devolu- de-evolution idea that let you, we could be robotic, we could be completely unrobotic, we could be just like the dumbest kind of blues band, like really just anything, as you were saying, low culture or pretentious German I like Kraftwerk, but... (laughs) You're right, and you just nailed it. We talked about all this stuff. You know, Devo was very conceptual and very worked out, very intentional. It all came from articulated ideas and intentions. And that thing you talked about, like, Devo wasn't married to a style. That's what I liked about Devo. When it got reduced to a style by the mid-'80s, that was the problem. Because it was the high and the low merging. And yes, you could do a dumb blues thing, or you could do a very pretentious, craftworky meets Devo thing. Yes, German minimalist synths. That's and you could do that in this one song after another live in the same night, and that was true freedom because the only thing that was connecting anything was the meta metaverse of Devo. Like we laid it out: Are we not men? We are Devo. We're devolving, not evolving. We're all Devo, which was important. We put ourselves in there, and we were free to be whatever we wanted to be. 
So did you feel like the Jihad Jerry thing, it doesn't seem as rooted in a particular musical style, but it can be obviously realized through various musical styles. Like it's not just, you couldn't do just anything. Like it had a continuum of stuff. Whereas Jihad Jerry, well, you know, it's going to be in your face. It's going to be a little angry or something. But other than that, it seemed like there wasn't, was there in your mind a connection between that persona and a particular musical style, a, you know, we're going to do like that relationship to soul R&B, which would be a weird thing to have an Islamist soul R&B shtick. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, you know, it's a, look, I object to all fundamentalism. I call the big religions the big three, like Detroit, right? Like when we had the big three automakers. And they all have used it throughout history to kill other people who disagree with them. And what they share is that insane rigidity, the fundamentalism, like the rules, right? And taking away people's freedom and making them do what they want them to do under threats of eternal hell or beheading or whatever. And imagine a guy that's had enough of that, but he was raised as a fundamentalist, but now it's a new kind of fundamentalism. He's fundamentally disgusted with the human race, period. Everybody's stupid and mean and every lying bastard, he hates them all. He's an avenger. And it seems to open things up more, I guess, to, as you were saying with the first song, attacks on individuals as opposed to just the system. Right. Or is that not a legitimate seems like, you know, you had plenty of low opinions of individuals with the old stuff as well. It's just that I object to you because, well, as as the owl says, do you play by the rules or do you go with the flow? And those seem like opposites, but they're actually both equally stupid. Merely going with the flow is, you know, lounging into the... Conformity. Yes, these explanations of sort of how capitalism eats rebellion, it commodifies everything. So even if you think, the, you know, whether you're a yuppie or a hippie, you're sort of still playing into the same fundamental screwed up system. So if you're attacking individuals, you're attacking the system. Yeah. That's why capitalism succeeds so well, because it can do that. You know, it's Pac-Man. It just eats everything and wins. Let's think about this third song that we're going to talk about, Fountain of Filth, regarding that. Can you say a few words about this? I know this is one you wrote with your brother back in the day, not released until Hardcore Devo Volume 2, but this was evidently, even though it has that classic Devo sound, not deemed, I don't know, you recorded Penetration in the Centerfold in a hi-fi studio way later, but not this one. Can you say a little about the history of this song? It was uh, one day in our rehearsal studio when we were writing songs for Freedom of Choice in 1979, right around Christmas time, and Bob and I were the only two guys left in the rehearsal hall that night. And of course, back then, again, you know, Devo would get together all day, right? Spend hours together all day, every day, and run a four-track machine and lay down ideas and play in the same room together. So everything was there and turned on and running, so we, we recorded that. Mistakes and all. You know, like one attempt, one night, period, and that was the only recording that existed of it. The eternal fountain of filth. I took a walk straight out of town, but then I stopped. 
the whole band obviously it's very distinctive sounds from everybody right but that particular so it was bob's contributed that initial guitar riff there it was. with that tritone thing in there and it's got that minimalism on very clear display including you know let's just introduce yeah just have the just the guitar there's also some i don't know if you recall the recording so clearly but i just wrote garbage symbol because there's some it sort of sounds like a gated symbol but it's you know there's some real symbols elsewhere in the song but it's just something that plays a pretty significant part coming in right even at the beginning and then it goes away and comes back through uh some of the verses do you remember like what that was or what yes alan overdubbed that and my memory is a bit fuzzy but i swear it was a real symbol it's just that it got recorded so badly that it turned into something else. And when we heard it, we go, oh, that's great, right? Like a happy accident. Can you say anything about how this got updated for the live hardcore thing, where it just, you know, a lot of these somewhat lo-fi songs became 
much more aggressive, still basically the same parts, but let's make the guitar sound much nicer, much less tinny, minimalist, in-your-face 1980. Yeah, that's what happens when you play something live after like 35 years. of You play better than you ever did, but that doesn't make it better. It makes it different. But it, it was fun playing those songs live, and I was doing it to honor my brother because basically Bob Casale is the one that spearheaded the whole idea of playing a hardcore tour. Like, go out and play only the hardcore songs from those two volumes. And he really was excited about that idea. And he, I loved it immediately. And he talked Mark into it. He talked Bob into it. And then he got it put together and worked with our agent, Ian Fintech. And he had a set of dates. And Mark blew those dates off, saying, I can't do it. So after Bob died, I go, can we at least do what Bob wanted us to do when he was alive? Even though now he can't play can't be part of it. And they agreed. So we went out and did what we were going to do when Bob was alive. But see, we did that in like uh, 2015, I think, late in 2015 in the fall. And we only played like maybe eight venues. I don't know. Maybe we're at the point where you just play enough so that it sounds really good. And then you get a really good recording of that like you did. The Blu-ray, I highly recommend to folks, just right up there. Very clear about sort of who does what in the band, if people were still wondering at this point. And you know what's nice is there's a storytelling element to that DVD where we're narrating it to the audience a bit to give them some context. And Mark was in a good mood, so he reanimated his tracheotomy character, the voice that he had used in Mechanical Man back in 1975, that he had never even tried to get again. You know, and there he was. He had found the piece of old hardware, that voice pitch analyzer that creeped his voice out and made it into a tracheotomy voice. And he does that long monologue before we start the first song, Mechanical Man, where he came up extemporaneously with the thing about cigarettes, naming all the brands from the 50s and 60s and talking about one lung for breathing, one lung for smoking. (laughs) It's very funny throwing out cigarettes to the audience. It almost seems a little uh, redundant to ask you about the specifics of the ideology of this song. I mean, it's sort of in the same universe as Uncontrollable Urge. Yeah, any thoughts about sort of the fountain of filth? During that concert, you just were saying, yes, we're reveling in how horrible society is. The flaw in the human species itself. Man is incredible, and it's usually work from very little people, very small number of people, to counter massive evil. But massive evil is what you can depend on. And I'm sure you've been feeling that the last five or six years, how it's like there's evil is in the air. It's like it's palpable. It's like hanging heavy like fog. And Fountain of Filth is about the dark side of human nature and about the fact that we have the ability to speak. And we use this ability to speak to just spread absolute filth, lies, junk, hurt, Have you reached the point where you feel like, you know, just like in these early days when you were doing the hardcore recordings, and now you have all the studio stuff at your fingertips, you have all these talented people that you can either get in there or send stuff off to, that there's really, having a record company would not make it go a lot farther anyway. Those people that promised to help you in the past can't even help you, even if they wanted to. You have a built-in audience, so is there anything preventing you? Do you feel like with this new song that you put out and that you know reviving this that yeah i should just record more whatever your missive of the day is and you know sort of bring back that regular songwriting to your life 
Or is that already happening? It's about to happen. I do have a lot more songs. The next song I intend to record with Josh is called The Invisible Man. (laughs) And then there's West Virginia Boy. And then there's Sex is a Weapon. Well, I cannot wait to hear that stuff. And I hope folks go watch the video. To send us off here, I just wanted to introduce one other recent, very video-intensive project, although I wasn't clear whether that was that you had directed this. So it's all Devo. I want to leave people with this song from 2016. Within Spitting Distance, after that hardcore tour, you had this one-off song with Italy's funk investigation, funk with a PH. Can you just say a little about this tune before we... Yeah, collaborated with my Italian friends. And my good friend, Max Papeschi, who's a big artist in Italy that never made it here, but he's a big deal in Milan and all over Italy. I used all of his imagery for that video. That's all from his paintings and collages. Well, this is very cool. And it's also very nice to see that between this and the new song and the thing that it seamlessly worked on the same album of, you know, from 15 years ago, and even the last Devo album, that there's enough, you know, common sonic character that like, okay, well, you've got a pretty clear blueprint for at least what we might, at least I don't think, are we going to hear harp music from the upcoming, or is it sort of more in this general vibe? You might hear country. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, that would be fun. I I mean, it was very cool to hear, you know, you're redoing like the, I need a chick and just like doing the unrestrained blues thing that was by the time Devo again became the released product, got all Devoed all over it, you know, as opposed to just this completely absurd over the top blues thing. (laughs) So yes, whatever stylistic experiments, I look forward to hearing (laughs) what you come up with. Thanks so much for doing this. Well, thank you for all your time. Thanks. All right. And here it is. It's all Devo.
Thanks so, so much to Jerry, for Jeff Winner, for setting this interview up. This is definitely one for my bucket list. Devo is a band that I own just about everything by. Had never really been clear about the roles of the various members. And Jerry has been their longtime spokesman. It was nice to have a slightly different sort of conversation with him, more focused on the ideology part, on how to do social critique through music, through humor. I find it interesting that we tend to want to impose our own political viewpoints on artists we respect. So like if I find a direct critique of the kind of thing that's in the owl here, then there's plenty of ammunition for me to think, well, that's irony, that's self-parody. It's not actually taking itself seriously or it's condemning its own form of critique. At the same time, it's critiquing its object. I've had a similar dynamic recently in listening to lots of Norm MacDonald clips on his death, trying to nail down what his positions actually were and how they differ substantially from my own. And that's good. It's great to actually get right from the artist's mouth what they're trying to say, even as, of course, art allows for multiple interpretations and multiple uses. Something that has been both a blessing and a curse for Devo, because it allowed them to become popular, but guaranteed that they would be widely misunderstood. All right, next up, another interview that I was extremely, extremely honored to have been able to undertake, Dar Williams, a primo singer-songwriter. And there's more great, great stuff ahead that I don't want to jinx yet because I haven't actually recorded it. I hope you're subscribed to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast. You can get the relevant links at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And man, oh man, could I use your support? which you could do at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Or with one fell swoop, you could support all three of my ancillary podcasts this one pretty much pop a culture podcast and my newest the super fun philosophy versus improv if you're using the apple podcasts mobile app there should be a button to subscribe which charges you a very small per month fee through the apple store that gets you ad free often extended versions of all three of those podcasts but whether or not you want to do that i hope you spread the word about this interview because this was pretty awesome 
And you can, of course, follow this podcast on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Whatever you do, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Litzmeyer signing off. Good.